All right. Good morning again, everyone. Welcome to our service for those of you who are joining us a little bit later. And we're going to continue in, in our sermon series, Tales of Timeless Wisdom, where we explore through the wisdom literature in Scripture and we see how we can begin to incorporate these truths into our lives in, in a very practical way. And for the past two weeks, we took a glance into the book of Proverbs, but for this week and the following week, um, we're, going, we're going to be taking at, uh, take a look at the book of Job and on the topic of suffering and wisdom. And when I was thinking about suffering, uh, I was reminded immediately of a story that Eddie Johansson once told me one afternoon. He stopped by, I think, after his cruise um, just to say hi. And he told me about the story about uh, a man named Sir Ernest Shackleton. Have you guys ever heard of this man, Sir Ernest Shackleton? He's one of the world's most famous Antarctic explorers. And till this day, right, the vastness of Antarctica remains one of the most harshest, one of the harshest, most desolate places on Earth. It's largely untouched for thousands, actually, yeah, for like <laughs> millions of years, really. And the very essence of life itself is tested against its extreme weather. But it is in this specific environment, you know, this freezing tundra, that Captain Shackleton and his fellow crewmates decided to explore. And so in 1914, Captain Shackleton, he set sail with his men on a ship they named the Endurance, with the goal of crossing through this icy tundra. However, before they even made it to land, a disaster struck. They were trapped in the Weddell Sea. If we go to the next slide, it's that small little, I don't know if you guys can see that small little red quadrant in the, in the northwestern part. So they basically, they didn't even make it to land yet. They're just basically stuck, stuck in that upper quadrant. Um, and they were there for two entire months. Their ship was trapped in ice. The ice began to expand. It crushed the ship and their whole ship sunk. And so Shackleton and his 28 other men, they were literally stranded on drifting ice floes for two entire months with minimal supplies, no means of communication, right? Satellites didn't exist at, you know, in 1914. Um, and they were trapped in one of the most hostile environments on this planet. But I think it's in the midst of adversity that our true colors begin to shine. I think lesser men and people, they would have given up immediately and they would have entered into complete despair. But it was Shackleton's unwavering commitment to his crew that was legendary. And so ca after camping on that ice floe for two months, Shackleton realizes that the only way for everyone to be saved is if they split up and one group goes out to find help. And so Shackleton, with a, with a small handful of men, I think about five other men, they went out to seek help. And so they got the sturdiest lifeboats that they had on hand. They made some makeshift improvements, covered it with oil paint and seal blood, uh, which is very bizarre. And they set sail on an 800-mile journey to an island a little further up northwest where they knew a whaling company was located. And so after 16 days, right, they're on sea in 16 days on this, on this lifeboat, they're battling monstrous waves, freezing temperatures, relentless winds. They finally made it onto the shore of South Georgia Island, but they were on the opposite side of the shore. And so after they got on land, 
they had to march another 36 hours on foot across literal mountain ranges and glaciers until they reached that whaling company. And so after that, rescue boats were sent out and everyone was saved. Not a single man died, despite how extreme the conditions they were in. And when I thought of this story, you know, I like to, you know, although what Shackleton did was absolutely admirable, I like to think of all those men who had to wait for Shackleton, right? Shackleton's journey to find rescue, absolutely admirable, but what made me pause in that story is the fact that the other 20-plus men who were still trapped with limited ice flows, they simply just sat there and waited. Their entire hopes, their entire lives were placed on Shackleton's shoulders, and they knew that if Shackleton died on this journey, they would all die, they would all perish, and there was nothing they could do about it. And I think, you know, life is pretty difficult, but if there's at least some sort of forward progress, it's at least somewhat bearable. But when we're in a position where we are stuck, where we have to wait and weather the storm, it takes a different type of resilience to be able to endure and to not give up. And the reason I bring this up today is that it is in these situations of suffering, in these situations of waiting, that shows us who we really are. Just as that icy wasteland tested the mettle of those 20-plus men who could do nothing but sit and wait, a lot of life's adversity also forces us to sit and wait. It forces us to wrestle and challenge our perceptions of God, of fairness, of justice. And so as we're about to take a look at our, our, our passage today, let us keep this perspective in mind, and let's see what we can learn from the story of Job, where Job and his wife are also forced into a situation where their true spiritual colors begin to show. And so let's take a look at our passage today. It's from Job chapter 2, um, verses 3 to 10. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Very well, then. He is in your hands, but you must spare his life. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat amongst the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. And he replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. One of my favorite books and passages of all time. I think when most people, when, when they read Job, or at least this part of Job, I think they misunderstand the point of what the story is all about, in my opinion, at least. I think when most people learn about the scene where God and Satan make a bet, uh, they think that God is simply toying with our lives. God is making bets and wagers like a gambler. But that misses the entire point of Job. The book of Job is actually an exploration 
of what a wise faith really looks like. And to illustrate this, I, I want you to imagine this. You know, you've received a promotion at work, everything is going your way, the bills are paid, the debts are settled, the kids are either doing well in school or they're doing well in their career. You got a clean bill of health from your doctor and you come into church on Sunday morning thinking, man, wow, like, God is great. God truly blesses me more than I deserve. But then things, unfortunately, they take a turn for the worse. The doctor, after a deeper examination, catches that there are some markers that she missed. Your company decides to do a round of layoffs after severe budget cuts. Your child begins to make friends with some unsavory people. Um, they start to make some very questionable decisions. Bills begin to pile up. Work is hard to find. And you miss your very first credit card payment. Then two bills are missed, and then three. And before you know it, debt returns. Life's tranquility is suddenly replaced with storms. And it's at this point that the true colors of our faith begins to show. Will we still come to church on Sunday morning thinking, wow, God is great? Would we even come to church at all? Would we even believe in God after all of this? And in essence, this is the exact challenge that both Satan and Job's wife throws at Job's face. Job is presented as a man for his righteousness and his unwavering faith. The thing is, he lost everything. He lost his kids, he lost all of his wealth, but Job did not curse God, and so Satan begins to switch tactics. He tells God this, skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life. And the challenge that Satan is presenting to God is essentially this. Job only believes in you because Job is still healthy. If you take away his health, he will throw his faith out the door as well. That is Satan's challenge. And so when Job's health does take a turn for the worse, Job's wife, she sees it too. And she also tells Job, why are you still maintaining your integrity? Just curse God and die already. You must not forget that Job's wife is also bearing the trauma and the loss of her children and her possessions as well. Job's wife also lost literally everything. And so when confronted with suffering, Job's wife's true colors were shown, and the quality of her faith in God was exposed. Job's wife reflects a conditional, surface-level and the basic idea of this sort of surface-level faith is that it is entirely transactional. If God blesses us, we serve him. If not, then what's the point? It's a temptation that is as old as humanity and a temptation that still exists today to tie our loyalty and our faithfulness to God based on how he responds to our immediate needs and our immediate desires. But unfortunately, this perspective is not only flawed, but it's also a sign of foolishness. But why? Because we begin to use the infinite God to grant us finite pleasures. God simply becomes a tool for our comforts. We believe that God exists only to serve our desires, our needs, our comforts. But even deeper than that, we end up tying our joy in life to things that ultimately come and go. 
See, the thing is, with or without God, our health will come and go. With or without God, our financial situation will fluctuate. With or without God, all things come and go. This is an unavoidable fact of life. And so why do we tie our source of joy to something that is entirely temporary? I want you to imagine for a moment, you know, you come across a person who is joyful every time the sun rises, you know, the, the sun, the warmth beats upon their face, you know, they're like, wow, this is amazing, this is great. But the moment the sun sets, they go into deep depression. And then they pray to God, Lord, you can do all things, right? You know, you're, you're obviously all-powerful. Keep the sun up 24-7. How would we respond to such a person? We think that person is foolish. Why? Because they've anchored their entire psychological and emotional well-being on an inevitability. The sun will rise and the sun will set, just as it always has. Similarly, when we have a transactional faith in God where we pin our source of peace, love, and joy, not on God, but on material circumstances that come and go, we set ourselves up for a life of continual disappointment. And so if this is the case, then what is the right perspective? When we see a correct faith, a wise faith in Job, when he tells his wife this, shall we accept good from God and not trouble. And this statement given by Job actually encapsulates the essence of what a profound and wise faith looks like. It's a faith that goes beyond surface-level transactional beliefs. You see, the thing is, our natural inclination as humans is to, as I said before, right, we praise God during times of prosperity and well-being, but turn away from God during times of tribulation. And when we do that, our faith becomes like a roller coaster with crazy peaks, but also soul-crushing valleys. Job's faith, however, is able to remain steadfast because he understands two things. He understands the duality of life and the sovereignty of God's nature. For one, Job's wisdom shows that the duality in life is inescapable. In every aspect of existence, there are peaks and there are valleys. There are moments of joy and pain. There are periods of abundance, but also seasons of lack as well. And so to think that our spiritual journey would be exempt from this duality is to misunderstand the very nature of life itself in this world that we live in. A flower blooms in the spring, and we are joyful. But come fall, as we are now in, they perish and die, and we think that's bad. Yet, it is the process of dying that gives nutrients to soil so that new flowers can rise again. So who is to say which is good and which is bad when even death gives birth to life? Shall we, as Job said, shall we accept one and not the other? Yet Job's understanding goes beyond just the acceptance of this duality. Job realizes that the key to a steady faith is recognizing and submitting to the sovereignty of God. And this is the complete opposite of Job's wife. Job reminds us that we should not pick and choose which aspects of God's plan we think are favorable to us alone. Job reminds us that God is a relational being who desires our trust even when circumstances challenge our comprehension. And for us as Christians, it's easy for us to adopt 
a passive resignation. It's easy for us to adopt a, you know, it is what it is mentality, c'est la vie mentality, but that's not it. What Job has is an active trust. It's a trust that believes, in, even in the midst of suffering and, and pain, it's a trust that believes that God still has a plan, he still has a purpose. That no matter how incomprehensible things are, all things that come from God are always rooted in his infinite wisdom and love. A few days ago, I, I stumbled across a, a short video from the late Pastor Tim Keller while he was actually preaching on, on the book of Job. I was like, oh, what a coincidence. And Tim Keller, he, he brought up an interesting point. At the end of Job, God tells all of Job's friends that they better ask Job to pray for their repentance. Otherwise, you know, God's going to, like, destroy them. And it's hilarious, right? Because if you actually read Job and you actually read what Job's friends are saying, they're just quoting from the book of Proverbs. They're just quoting from wisdom literature at that time. They're trying to teach Job wisdom in the midst of his suffering, but why is it that God declared Job righteous in the end and not his friends, even though his friends were literally quoting scripture? And Tim Keller, he made this point. Job was declared righteous because Job's words were prayers to God. That even if God had nothing to physically offer to Job, even if God had no blessings to promise to Job, Job still wrestles and prays to God. Even when surrounded by friends who advised him with worldly wisdom, Job remained steadfast in his connection and in his relationship to God, choosing to converse, choosing to wrestle with God rather than forsake him. And this is why at the end of Job, Job is declared righteous. He desired to stay with God even when the world and even when his own wife told him to leave his own faith. But I think the question for us at the end of the day is why? This, this sounds all nice, but why? Why choose God? Why remain with God despite all the difficulties and tragedies that incur in life? And I think the answer to this is actually found in one of Jesus' favorite analogies to talk about the sufferings of this world. And what Jesus normally says about the sufferings of this world, he compares it to the pains of childbirth, right? Once a pregnant woman feels the contraction uh, becoming increasingly regular, she instinctively heads to the hospital. And, all the hospital. and although the hospital might have the most sophisticated medical tools, skilled professionals, and the latest pain treatment medication, it cannot totally eliminate the pain of childbirth. They might mitigate it and help make it more tolerable, but pain still remains a part of the process. But what the hospital and the doctors do ensure for the woman is a controlled and sterile environment. Where no matter what, the likelihood of the baby's survival is extremely high, barring any sort of freak accidents. And so from indescribable pain comes the unbelievable joy of a new life. And this analogy resonates a lot with our own spiritual walk. See, in the midst of our suffering and pain, turning to God doesn't always mean instant relief. The Holy Spirit comforts us, of course. We try to remember the suffering of Christ on the cross, and that gives us a bit of strength to continue forward, but the pain still remains in us for a period of time. But the thing is, when we align ourselves with God, 
we make sure that we are in the best possible environment for our suffering. Let me repeat that one more time. When we align ourselves with God, we make sure that we are in the best possible environment for our suffering. We leave ourselves at the hands of our Father, who is beyond loving, who is beyond compassionate. God, he understands the depth of human suffering and the intensity of it since he experienced it too. But God, at the same time, also points to a brighter future. For some, God will use some of your suffering to deepen your faith so that you can continue to be a blessing to others. For others, God might even use your current pain to turn you away from idolatry, which has done nothing but produce suffering and pain in your life. But just as a mother is willing to bear the pain of going through labor, labor for the promise of a new life, we as Christians, we are also willing to bear the pain because we know that we are also promised a new life. And this, in essence, is the hope of the gospel. That there will come a time where we won't have to worry. A time when all anxiousness is terminated. A time when sadness and depression are a thing of the past because there's nothing to worry about anymore. There's nothing to be anxious about. There's nothing to be sad about because all things that are lacking in our lives will be fulfilled. And so while we endure for a time here, on this side of eternity, I want to encourage us. Let us draw strength from our future. Because just as eager as we are to spend time with our Lord, God himself is even more eager to welcome us into his kingdom. And so brothers, take hope and courage from this. As we're about to enter into a time of prayer, I, I want us to... Just think for a moment, just reflect for a moment to, to think about what has gone through this past week, through this past month, any pain, any suffering that has been in your life. And I want to encourage us to bring every single pain and every suffering to our Lord. Maybe it's related to us personally, or maybe it's something that's family related. And as we picture the suffering, as we feel the suffering, I want us to remember these words spoken to us by our Lord, who says this, Behold, I am making all things new, and it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the springs of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children." brothers and sisters, let us hold fast to God, knowing that he indeed is making all things new. It is already done in heaven, and it will be done here on earth. All we are called to do is to hold on to him, to cling on to him, to him who will make all things right. Let's come together for a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, today um, we bring to you all of our sufferings and all of our prayings and all of our pains. Uh, we bring to you the tragedies of life and the sorrows of our hearts, and we lift them up to you because we recognize that there is nothing else that can solve these problems. There's nothing else that can solve these issues. We turn wealth into an idol, believing it will fix all things, 
But was it not you, Father, who created all the golds and all the diamonds of this world? And is it not you who promised us indescribable treasures in heaven? And so, Father, we turn to you, knowing that you fulfill all things. We recognize, too, Father, that we've turned to others for unconditional love, but which one of us has never been hurt by someone close? And so we acknowledge that only you can satisfy our need for unconditional love. So we pray, Father, that as we undergo sufferings of any kind, you will give us the wisdom and the foresight to see that you alone are the only way out. Every other road leads to death, but if you are the God of life, who you say you are, the God who has defeated death on the third day, then we place all of our trust in you. We recognize, Lord, that we may not receive an answer as to why we suffer while we're still here, but what we have received is something far greater than an answer. We received a promise from you. So let us hold on to that and allow that to encourage our hearts today to live a wise faith. And pray all of this in your precious son's name. Amen.